Let's hear God's word from Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, uh, and we come to this idea of Paul where there is no distinction, as he says, uh, I want us to, to reflect here at the beginning on people that we might think are pretty good. People maybe we know, maybe we've read about, certainly what uh, we read in the scriptures. Think of the people that you would label as mature or godly or the best people or something to that effect. Obviously, not Jesus here, that he's in his own category. Um, But then also reflect on people who you might think um, are the opposite of that, who are not so good. Maybe people you know personally, or again, maybe some you've read about or have heard about or something like that, even the ones we see in the scriptures. So with this briefly in mind and trying to apply Paul's point here about no distinction, let us come here now to his next thought in uh, these verses. Now, so far, beginning in verse 21, his first thought is simply that we have now changed from the era of the Old Testament promise to fulfillment in Christ. Paul has also changed in his argument from the sinfulness of our sin now to the righteousness of God. And so he started with the wrath of God being revealed, now the righteousness of God being revealed. Now he has told us also that this righteousness is spoken of in the Old Testament. This is not a new idea here in the New, but it is much more clearly demonstrated now that Christ has come. And so through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and glorification, even the giving of the Spirit, all of these things proclaim to us the righteousness of God. Then Paul has also said that this righteousness is not for those who have earned it. It's not for those who seek to establish their own righteousness by law-keeping, but is only for those who look to Jesus in faith. And so as we talked briefly last time, when we know the truth about Jesus, when we assent to that knowledge and trust in him that we can go to heaven because he has obeyed for us, that we can stand in the judgment because he took the judgment for us, and that because he rose again, we can live forever in heaven. When we put our trust in Jesus in these things, then we can know this righteousness of God. Now, when we put our faith in God and not in our faith, not the sincerity of our faith or a choice that I have made, then we know this righteousness. Well, Paul's next point is to expand a bit on this. And he does so by referring back to some of what he has already said. And so the question here is, who knows this righteousness? Yes, those who believe, but to what extent? So let's pick up then in verse 22, where the whole verse says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, now the new part, 
to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. All right, now the first thing I want to just address here briefly are the differences in our translations. The New King James obviously has this longer reading, but if you have a different translation, you probably only have uh, to all who believe or unto all who believe or something like that. Uh, my Bible has the longer one as the New King James. It also has a footnote telling us about it. So what's going on? Well, simply, there are some differences in the manuscripts. Some of them say to all who believe, or you could translate it unto all who believe. Some say on all, or you could translate it upon all who believe, and some have both. Obviously, the New King James has both, and uh, our, the ESV or the NAS or something is just going to have the first option. Now, as I've talked about before, when we're dealing with manuscript evidence and when there are some differences here, they rate them on the scale of A, B, C, and D. A is, well, we're pretty sure this is what Paul wrote. There's some question, but we're pretty sure this is what he actually wrote. Uh, if it's a B rating, which is what we have here, then the response is, we're not so sure which one Paul wrote. Both of them make sense. Um, so we're not going to say as certainly of what he said. But we still lean toward a certain direction. Okay? C and D was, you know, it's even less certainty. It is likely, though again, there's more uncertainty here, that Paul simply said, to all who believe. But the added phrase here, on all, certainly is a biblical idea. It is surely true that God's righteousness is given to all who believe in Jesus. But it is also true to say that Christ's righteousness is placed on us. The righteousness of God is not only given to us, it's put upon us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His blood covers our sins, washing us clean. And so both of these ideas are true. Um, but again, the textual evidence does suggest that we go to the idea that has been given to us. But the main point is simply this. All who are believing in Jesus experience God's righteousness. And notice that Paul uses the word all here. Um, if you have the New King James, you see it three times. If you don't, you see it two times. Twice here in verse 22, and again then in verse 23. Paul is emphasizing everyone here, all. But what does he mean by that? Well, to go back to what we talked about last week with faith, all who know the truth and all who assent to the truth, all who trust in God and in Jesus, everyone who believes is seen as righteous in God's sight, knows this righteousness. There are no exceptions. Now, we need to qualify that, but Paul's point here is anyone who believes knows God's righteousness. And so, first of all, here in this way, God demands perfect righteousness from us. Jesus himself says that in Matthew 5, verse 48. He says that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's standard. We read in Leviticus 19 earlier that we are to be holy as God is holy. And as we saw throughout the chapter, basically all areas of life are touched on in one way or another. In everything we do, whether it's worship, whether it's relating in business, 
whether it's the things that we wear, the food that we eat, it doesn't matter. We must be holy in everything. That's the point. We are to be holy as God is holy. Okay? This is God's standard. But, of course, we cannot and do not achieve this standard. Apart from Christ, we don't achieve it at all because everything we do is mixed with sin. And even as a believer with the Spirit working in us, we still fall far short of what God expects of us. But when we trust in Jesus, and it doesn't matter who it is, when we trust in Jesus to be perfect for us, then God treats us as perfect in his sight because Jesus obeyed perfectly for us. All who believe have this righteousness now. But we also then can say this, everyone who believes has their sins forgiven. God did not just send Jesus to obey in our place. He also sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve. God cannot overlook sin. We often do this as parents okay, or teachers in a classroom or something like that. We, we have our children who disobey and sometimes we discipline them, sometimes we just overlook it. But God never overlooks our sin. He can't. That is against his character. Our sin must be punished. And so Jesus then came to take the punishment that we deserve by dying on the cross. He took the punishment for our sin, the payment for our sin. And so God's righteousness is upheld. And so Paul's point here then is that anyone who trusts in Jesus to take the judgment that we deserve, then we are treated as forgiven, as if we have never sinned. The judgment that we deserve has been met. God's justice is satisfied. And so therefore, as Paul's going to go on to say, God's no longer angry with us. We can enter into heaven, be his children, be in his presence, and so forth. And so Paul here, in saying, all who believe, who have faith in Jesus, enjoy these aspects of God's righteousness. But before he develops that thought that I've just given to you, he wants us to especially emphasize the all of this idea. The righteousness of God is given to all who believe. And for Paul in Romans, his primary distinction is this includes Gentiles, not just the Jews. But we could expand on this idea, of course. And in light of what we talked about last week, the righteousness of God is given to all who believe, not just those who think they've made a decision for Jesus in their free will. As well as, back to verse 21, okay, not to those who keep the law, but those who trust in Jesus. And so all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile, anyone, everyone who trusts in him. Now, ultimately, of course, None of us would believe on our own. No one will believe unless God first sets us free from our bondage. And he talked about our bondage back in verse 9. No one will believe until he first makes us alive. We see that in Ephesians 2. No one will believe unless he first chooses us. And he'll talk about that in Romans 9. But that's not his point here. 
He's not talking about our inability here. He's assuming that God is working and all those things. But again, that's not what he's emphasizing at this point. Paul here is saying there is no difference. There is no distinction. Anyone who believes will know the righteousness of God. We'll have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and Christ will take the righteous judgment in our place. All right, now the word here at the end of the verse says no difference in the New King James. It uh, can be translated as no distinction. And so let's make some distinctions here. Paul is saying it does not matter if you are a descendant of Abraham, okay, like Paul, or not. Like, say, for example, Luke, who was a Gentile. It doesn't matter. Okay? It Either one, if they believe in Jesus, they can know this righteousness. Think of Peter, one of the apostles, one of the inner three, the chosen one, if you will, the one on which the church will be built, so to speak, okay, this rock. And compare him to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a God-fearer, someone who wasn't even circumcised. But there's no distinction, for both believed. Or think of Timothy. He was part Jew and part Gentile. And compare him, say, to James, the brother of Jesus himself. There is no distinction. Or as we transition here to our current day, there is no distinction between the moral churchgoer who's been part of the church their whole life and who's tried to live a life of godliness, which, hey, that applies to many of us. There is no distinction between that person and, if I could connect with what we talked about in Sunday school, hey, the person who's been part of the gay lifestyle but has now trusted in Christ. Think of Rosaria Butterfield, for example. Hey, or compare ourselves to maybe someone you've heard of here recently in the last couple months, Kat Von D. I'd never heard of her before the last couple months, but apparently she was some celebrity and a witch and very vocal about this. But apparently she claims that she's been converted and she was baptized here recently and, and so forth. And assuming that's true, Paul is saying there is no distinction between someone who has been godly their whole life and someone who hasn't. Both of us, if we're trusting in Christ, know the righteousness of God. Okay? Anyone who trusts in Jesus is saved. Okay. Let's turn here a moment, <clears throat> excuse me, to Matthew chapter 20. In light of what I was just saying, this is a parable that uh, maybe many of us need to be reminded of. And in uh, Matthew chapter 20, here at the beginning, we see the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And you remember the story. Jesus talks about the landowner who goes out at six in the morning to hire a laborer for the day. Now, remember, they basically they worked for a day. They were paid for a day and such. It's, we do it differently, uh, of course, uh, in our culture today. 
Uh, but he went out first thing in the morning, 6 a.m., and he hired some men to work and said, I'll give you a denarius, which was a day's labor of, of payment. It was basically what normally was done. And so they get out and work. Well, then he goes out at 9 a.m., and he hires some more. And then at noontime, the sixth hour, and hires some more. And then even at the ninth hour, at 3 p.m., he hires some more. And then, verse 6, the eleventh hour, and he found some, and he said, hey, you come work for me for another hour for the day. Well, when the day was done, we see especially in verses 8 and following, he calls them and starts paying them. And he gives a denarius to the person who only worked for an hour. And another denarius for those who worked three hours and six and nine. And when he got to the people who had worked all 12 hours and he gave them the same wage, they were now upset. And he said, why? I said, this is what we do. Okay. Note especially verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And when it, we come to this, if you will, level playing field of salvation, for those of us who have been working our whole lives, as it were, when we've been trying to serve the landover in the vineyard and be godly Christians, and we see someone else who's been living for themselves for possibly their whole lives, or at least for many years, and then they come to faith, sometimes we have a grudge. And we think, well, that doesn't seem very fair. How can they be receiving the same blessings as me? I've been doing better than they have. But Paul is saying, you don't understand yourself. You don't understand salvation. You don't understand the righteousness of God if that's what you're thinking. Because none of us deserve any of this. It is all for those who trust in Jesus, not for those who are trusting in themselves. And so there is no distinction. There is no difference, he says. It is only by faith, not by any of our works. Now, let me also tie into some of what I talked about last week in this way. Last week, I talked about trying to understand carefully what Paul is saying here about faith versus works and how in our current denominations and churches and such, we um, have some wrong views out there. There are people who are putting faith in faith. There are people who are adding works to faith. And I talked about some of those different views. Okay. But let me now add this point to it. I am not in any way contradicting what I said last week. So listen carefully. Even those who are part of a system of doctrine that have some wrong understanding about these matters, if they're trusting in Christ, then they know the righteousness of God. It is not just those who have the right understanding who can know the righteousness through Christ. Even those who have it wrong can know the righteousness of Christ if they're trusting in Christ. 
So for example, right, we have some Amish that live around us here. And fundamentally, their system of doctrine is works-oriented. But if there are some who are trusting in Jesus and not their own works, then they're going to be saved. And I've encountered some where I'd be surprised if they're not in heaven. I think they're actually trusting in Jesus, not in the clothes that they're wearing or the things that they're avoiding. Same can be said for, I mentioned last time, some of the Catholic position. I think as a system of doctrine, it is fundamentally wrong. I am clearly a Protestant and Reformed in this way. I do not see the Catholic system in many ways to be biblical. But that doesn't mean there aren't some Catholics who actually trust in Jesus. In God's grace, he has worked in their hearts. Their system is wrong. But if God has worked in them and they're trusting in Jesus, then they know God's righteousness through Christ too. I mentioned also last time about the Arminians and how they treat faith as a work, even if they don't admit it or realize it. But if they're trusting in Jesus, then they too know this righteousness. Those who believe in a baptismal regeneration like Catholics or Lutherans or sloppy Protestants and sloppy Baptists, those who insist on speaking in tongues or doctrinal precision. What matters ultimately is faith in Christ. Now, this is not to say that it doesn't matter what we believe. It does. But what it is saying is that God is greater than our ignorance. God is greater than our choice because ultimately he's the one who's changing our heart. It's not my faith that saves me. It's God that saves me and I am putting my faith in Christ and that faith is imperfect. That faith is incomplete. That faith is weak. That faith has ignorance and wrong ideas in it. Those whom God has chosen even from those from wrong places and understandings, those people will trust in Christ. And there is no distinction, Paul is saying. It's not just Reformed Presbyterians that will be in heaven. Or Southern Baptists or any other group. They think, well, the only ones that are going to be there. Some of them will speak that way. And the totally Reformed especially. But listen... It is ultimately because of God's grace. And so again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying let's ignore the importance of rightly understanding what God's word says. But what I'm trying to say here is what Paul says, that ultimately in the end it just comes down to faith. Trusting in Jesus, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in what he has done. And if you do that, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your understanding is. You will know the righteousness of God. And so this is not to excuse wrong things, but to highlight that every one of us has something wrong about our faith and about our understanding. But it's all because of his grace. And so 
We are not saved because of our right doctrine. We are not saved by a great faith. We are not saved by keeping the law. We are not saved by making a choice. We are not saved by our heritage or any other thing other than God's grace through Christ and us trusting in him. And so anyone, whether a child or someone on their deathbed, whether the so-called good person or the so-called notorious sinner, those who have right views or not, there is no distinction. If you trust in Christ, you know God's salvation. And so Paul here is basically giving us a level playing field. None of us deserve this. That's why there is one way, and one way only, and that is by trusting in someone else. Okay. <clears throat> so, let's bring in now verse 23, where Paul finishes his, his thought in this way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Obviously, Paul here in this verse is summarizing what we saw in chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20. Every person who has ever lived has sinned. There are no exceptions other than Christ, of course, but there otherwise are no exceptions. It doesn't matter where we're from, what era we've lived in, okay, or any other distinction. Okay? And in light of some of the debates here in the last few weeks, even the preborn, there is no exception even there. We all are united to Adam. We all have original sin. Every human ever falls short continuously of God's glory. And this is because of past sins, present sins. This is because we're united to Adam and because of our own behavior. And so the point Paul is emphasizing is if you look away from yourself and look to someone else, to Jesus, that's where we find this salvation. All right, now what does he mean here by the glory of God? Well, it is sure, surely true to say that God is more glorious than anything and everything. He is above all things. Nothing that he has made comes to his standard of glory. Everything falls short. The angels fall short of his glory. Sinless Adam, okay, even heaven itself. And the glorified saints, even these things fall short of God's glory. Only God has glory and everything else is under that, so to speak. So think of Isaiah 6, think of Revelation 4. This is true, but that's not what Paul's emphasizing here. Paul's point is the glory of God that was given to Adam before the fall, <clears throat> excuse me, as image bearers, God established his image in Adam. And so Adam's goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, his knowledge, his morality prior to the fall. <clears throat> this is the glory of God that Paul is emphasizing here. Or you could put it this way, what God intended us to be. Well, since the fall, no one rises to that level. Again, other than Christ. No one has ever come close to this. Obviously, the unbeliever, or in Paul's language, the Gentile, <clears throat> but not the Jew either, as we saw in chapter 2, and as we made application, not for the Christian. Okay. 
We are either a zero on this glory scale, or even as God's people, we are far short of God's standard that he gave in the garden to Adam. We are on the scale of one to a hundred, right? We're pretty low on it, even as believers. We all have fallen short of God's standard. And so there is no difference. We're all saved the same way because we're all equally sinful. We are all equally short of God's glory. And so, again, this is Paul, what he's emphasizing here. Now, let me pause and and, uh, make this comment. Some people over the centuries have tried to make the case that the image of God given to Adam was lost, was completely done away with when he sinned. I do not agree with that at all, because if that were the case, then we'd be just uh, no different than the animals. And that's clearly not true. Even the unbelievers are clearly different from animals because we still have the image of God in us. It has certainly been corrupted. It has been tarnished. And many times we act like animals, (laughs) but we still have the image of God within us. And so this is why all we do does reflect on God in some way. We're still made in his image, but it's also why all we do is imperfect because we've all fallen short. This image has been corrupted. And this is why nothing we do is meritorious. Even as Christians, this is why we fall so far short. And so Paul here is saying, we are equal before God. No one lives according to his standards as unbelievers and even as believers in Christ. As unbelievers, maybe you can talk about varying degrees of zero, um, but it's still falling short of God's glory. So whether you're talking about the soccer mom who is really nice and, and, you know, you want her as your friend and you let your kids play with her kids or whatever, or you're talking about the socialist dictator who enjoys killing millions, there is a distinction, but not before God when it comes to to righteousness, because all have fallen short of God's standards of perfection. Now, we can, I think, rightly talk about varying degrees of judgment. I think Stalin is going to receive far more judgment than someone who has never done anything like him. But both of them, if they are not trusting in Christ, are going to be judged. And so your nice, friendly, generous, kind, unbelieving neighbor, as well as the woke, hey, LGBT thing, like we've talked about this morning, you know, or the the evil socialist or the globalist or whatever, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even as professing believers in Christ, and so back to what I was saying at the very beginning, Hey, maybe some of those best people that you thought of uh, were people like Paul or Moses or Daniel or Mary or Hannah or some other godly person in the scriptures. But the godliest of saints, of course, fell short. I do. You do. We all. We have varying degrees of righteousness and holiness as believers, 
but we're still falling short. As I made mention of here um, you know, a month ago or whatever it was, even as we are striving in our sanctification, we really are not rising probably much above the teens or the 20s on this scale of righteousness. Maybe we get into the 30s on a really good day. And if some really are going to insist that we're higher than that, which I don't think you can, but even so, you're still not going to put us at 100 here in this life. We're still falling short. And we deserve judgment. Let me read a moment here from uh, John Stott. And he's quoting from uh, a man here, Bishop Hanley Moole. And uh, he was an Anglican uh, theologian. He died in 1920. And here's how he put it. The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of the Alps. But you're as little able to touch the stars as they. Paul here is, if I can use the analogy, trying to put us all in the same playing field. And... um, The only way, the only ball, as it were, that can be used here in this game is the ball of faith. Not works, not my choice, not my spiritual pedigree, not my knowledge, but faith in Christ. No one has an advantage over the other. The only one who has an advantage is the one whose heart God has changed. And that is all by his grace, not because of anything in us. If you pick up the ball of faith, so to speak, then you can play in this game of righteousness. You won't do it until he works in you first. But if you do it, this is how we know God's righteousness. And again, this is Paul's point. And so we are all the same. We are sinners. This is why we need The righteousness by faith and not by works. All we need is a righteousness that is not our own and a righteousness that is received by faith. Our only hope is Jesus, not ourselves. Paul, in one sense, is repeating himself here in this verse and even in the end of verse 22. Some of the things that we've already looked at, but he's repeating himself now in this context of faith something that he only hinted at at the very beginning in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And now he is putting it together here in this way. And so, again, as I asked you last time, do you have faith in Christ? This is the only hope that we have, looking to him, not to ourselves, but to him. And it doesn't matter If you have been in the church your whole life or not, it doesn't matter what you have done or not done. What matters is trusting in Jesus. Have you done so? That is our hope. And so as Paul here is contrasting law and faith and now contrasting those who believe and those who don't, it doesn't matter who believes, now he's going to turn and verses 24 to 26, to talk about what Jesus did. I've been already giving us some of that, but now he is going to emphasize that here in these next few verses.
And so you might say what we're going to believe in. All right. Well, a few thoughts here about these words today. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Paul's careful explanation of these ideas. Lord, we um, are thankful because you know all too well our propensity to try to um, rely on ourselves in some way in our salvation. And we are thankful, Lord, for your persistence through Paul and continually pointing out that this is not true. And we can't contribute anything. For even our faith is a gift. Even our faith is far from perfect. But Lord, we are thankful that you have sent forth your son to keep your law for us, to die an atoning death, to secure righteousness for us. And Lord, we do ask that you would help us to turn away from ourselves and as it were to pick up this ball of faith and not just once not just in our initial conversion but day by day that the righteous would live by faith and that we would trust in you in everything as we strive under righteousness that we would not fall prey to um, these wrong things but to continue to trust in you through Jesus Christ. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.